Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. We're happy to welcome back to the podcast, Dr. David Harkey. He's the president of the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety and the Highway Loss Data Institute. Dr. Harkey was also our guest on the June 2018 episode in which we discussed pedestrian safety. This month, we're going to be talking about connected and automated vehicles, and in particular, advanced driver assistance systems. David, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Bernie. Great to be here. As I I mentioned, we're going to be talking about automated vehicles and advanced driver assistance systems. And there have been a couple of studies that IIHS came out with in the past few months that have got a fair amount of attention. And we want to dig a little deeper into some of those. That first study cites data that illustrates the growing benefit of ADAS. Tell us a bit more about that study and some of the benefits that it noted, if you would, please. So this was a, a study that we did with data that we acquired from BMW, looking at their later model year vehicles. And we had an opportunity, a unique opportunity, to look and see how, as you add technology to a vehicle, how does the safety performance change? And so what we discovered was is that as we went from what we call a level one system for driving assistance, all the way through various levels of technology for level two systems, there were some increased benefits until we got to the very last one. And we can talk more about that. But it gave us a really unique opportunity to look and see how we are continuing to see safety benefits from these technologies. Now, the second study, that was the one I think that perhaps was a little more controversial in the eyes of some people. It looked at possible limits on automated systems in reducing crashes. And if I'm not mistaken, what the study came out as far as a conclusion in part was that about one third of crashes might be prevented by self-driving systems. Tell us a bit more about that study, how it was conducted, and some of the data that it used to come up with those conclusions. So we've been for several years now trying to think about what are the long range benefits of some of these autonomous vehicle systems? If we truly get to a point where we have vehicles that can drive themselves, that can replace the driver in the loop, right? You can literally take the driver out of the loop, let the vehicle handle all the decision making and all of the driving tasks. What could be the benefits from that? And so this was a very unique opportunity where we looked at the types of crashes that are occurring using NHTSA's database of detailed crash investigations, categorizing those crashes based on the kinds of driver errors that were occurring, and then being able to estimate if you truly had an autonomous vehicle, which of those crashes would be eliminated, and which of those crashes might an autonomous vehicle still struggle to eliminate. That study, as I mentioned or alluded to, was a bit controversial in the the eyes of some. Tell us a bit about what your reaction was to some of the negative reaction that came from that study, including some of the criticisms of the methodology that was used. I think the criticism, I view it as a positive because what we were trying to do was to highlight, like I said, the kinds of crashes that 
an autonomous vehicle might be able to prevent and the kinds of crashes that it might struggle with. And one of the things that we did was, is we divided those crashes into sensing and perceiving errors, which autonomous vehicles could handle very well, incapacitation errors. So if you think about incapacitation as a result of alcohol impairment, as an example, which again, autonomous vehicles are not going to have that issue. Those are the two categories that we know self-driving vehicles could handle. But when you start talking about other kinds of driver errors that occur, they are associated with being able to predict what's going to occur in the driving environment and respond to that. Or it's going to be conscious decisions that the driver makes about planning and deciding how to drive, right? And so you may at times have to accelerate and exceed the speed limit in order to safely merge in traffic, or you might have to make other choices that violate a traffic law. Well, if autonomous vehicles are being designed in such a way that they never violate a traffic law, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And will they be able to avoid a traffic collision by being able to abide by the traffic laws that in some cases a driver would be able to do? And so I think these are the kinds of things we were trying to get at and you know, raise the consciousness of those who are designing these vehicles and thinking about these systems and how you plan for them. And so I think we saw the criticism as a positive because what happened was is people said, well, we think that you are underestimating what an autonomous vehicle can do in the future. We think that you are not accounting for some of the technology and the capabilities of that technology to handle some of these situations. So in our mind, what we were doing was raising the bar to say, you really need to account for all of these other situations where drivers make mistakes when you're designing these systems and planning for implementing them in the traffic world. And so if you read some of the criticism, it was really interesting when they, they went through their criticism of our study and saying, well, we were speculating about certain things. And that's very true. And they turned around and they were speculating about what the AV could do. And so when you get to the end of the article, what you find is, is that both of us are speculating about what the future is going to look like. And it probably resides somewhere in the middle. The example that you gave, for instance, where a driver, as they merge onto a highway, might have to increase their speed to higher than the legal limit to safely merge onto the highway. Could the vehicles conceivably be programmed in such a way that would not be a problem, that it would allow sufficient room for the vehicle to safely merge onto the roadway and not have to increase speed to where a crash is more likely? Yeah, I think they can. The technology is becoming more and more complex. The decision-making algorithms that are being designed by a lot of these companies, they're running millions of simulations and trying to design these systems and come up with the right decision making based on various traffic characteristics, road surface characteristics, weather conditions, you know, all these variables that they're putting into these models. I do think that eventually we will get to a point where they will be able to design these systems and operate these systems in a way that will make it safe for everyone. One of the things you have to remember is that A lot of these systems, when we talk about them, we almost talk about them as if they're being designed for a closed system. In other words, you have control of your environment, that all of the vehicles in the environment are autonomous vehicles. 
and you're able to control all of the vehicles and they can talk to one another and interact with one another. But we are decades away from being able to have a truly closed system. We're gonna be in an open system for a very long period of time in which these vehicles are going to have to interact with human controlled vehicles. And they have to account for all of the decisions and the actions that human beings are gonna to continue to make in their vehicles. And that's the really hard part, is trying to design a vehicle that can work in this open system where you have all of these unknown and uncontrollable variables. Do you think one of the issues is that some people, perhaps many people, are looking at fully autonomous vehicles as a panacea and not addressing some of the issues in the here and now that we can take care of to lessen the number of crashes that we have today before we reach that point somewhere in the future? I think that was a bigger problem early on, right? When we first started talking about autonomous vehicles a decade ago, I certainly think that that was a huge part of the problem, that some of these companies got way out in front of where the technology was at the time and even where it is now. And I think what's happened is, is that they realized that this is gonna take much longer to get to a point where you truly can have this kind of vehicle out there on the roadway and operating safely, and that the consumer can afford and will want, this is gonna take a while to get there. And so one of the things that's happened, and we've seen it with the automakers that we work with, is that they've really kind of divided their efforts into two places now. One is, is on the autonomous vehicle self-driving part. That's kind of a separate part of the company. And all of the tech companies that are involved in this, they're in that bucket as well. The other bucket is on the advanced driving assistance systems, which was the first study we were talking about. And they're really focused on how do we continue to put technology in the vehicle that will assist the driver, not replace the driver, which is the other bucket, but how do we assist the driver and make things safer? And I think that's where a lot of the focus is now. And that's what we're encouraging automakers to continue to do and to focus on for the near future. On the date that we're recording this at the end of June, I don't know if you had a chance to see this because I believe it just came out yesterday. There was a study from Consumer Reports, which is kind of complementary to what you're saying. And they were saying that traffic deaths could be cut in half if advanced traffic crash avoidance systems were required as standard equipment in all vehicles. Have you had a chance to look at that, even uh, just glance through it at all and any thoughts? Yeah, I did see it briefly. I would support their conclusions. I think it goes along with what we're saying, which is we think there are huge benefits. We might not agree on the exact number, but I think there are huge benefits to continuing to put these kinds of systems in vehicles. We've been evaluating driver assistance systems now for about a decade. And we've seen the benefits of everything from automatic emergency braking, reducing crashes, police reported crashes, rear end type collisions, which that system is intended to prevent, by more than 50%. We've seen blind spot assist systems and lane departure warning systems reducing crashes by as much as 10% were the kinds of collisions that where you might have a lane change situation. So we do see benefits from these systems. And that's what the BMW study was all about, was looking at the latest version of those systems. Whatever the number is in terms of being able to reduce crashes and fatal crashes in particular, there's that remaining percentage that are still going to be going on. What do you see as some of the key strategies and countermeasures that can address those crashes 
that aren't addressed by technology? That's a very good question. It's a very important question, and it's one that is critical to addressing the entire safety challenge that we have in front of us with regards to transportation. We're not going to reduce 37,000 plus fatalities on U.S. roadways simply with technology in the vehicle. And so we have to be looking at all of the other interventions that we have available to us. And that includes what we can do to change behaviors of drivers, of pedestrians, of bicyclists, of everybody on the roadway. It includes what we can do to change the infrastructure. And this is a big part of you know what we refer to as the safe system approach to road safety that a lot of us now are very engaged in and trying to promote here in the U.S. to make sure that we look at things in this holistic, comprehensive way and try to address all aspects from the vehicle to the road user to the infrastructure. And with regard to the road user in particular, it's really important for us to not lose sight of interventions that can be strengthened in terms of policies and practices. So if you think about things like automated traffic enforcement, as an example. Countries where they have implemented automated traffic enforcement, like Australia and some of the other places, have driven their fatality numbers down dramatically. Countries that have adopted the safe systems approach, like Switzerland, have done the same sort of thing. They've driven their numbers down, you know, more than 50%. And so I think we have to continue to look for these kinds of interventions. We have to continue to do simple things like putting in roundabouts in place of signalized intersections where we know we can drop the fatality numbers by as much as 80% at those locations. So we have to continue to do the kinds of things that we have traditionally done and not get lost in thinking about the shiny object of the self-driving car. That's really, really important because it's gonna be a long time before we're able to actually have that shiny object available to us. You mentioned at the beginning of that answer a, a bit about driver behavior being changed. I think back to my first vehicle nearly 50 years ago when I started driving. I had bought my dad's 1968 Plymouth Fury. It was a boat of a car, uh, you know, in retrospect to what's out there today. But it was one of the first cars that I had seen that had shoulder belts. But the shoulder belts, you actually had to fold them and put them up over the driver's door. So to use them was a real pain. And seat belts in general, it's taken decades for us to get to the point where that has has become almost second nature for the majority of drivers to use seatbelts. And obviously we've seen the benefits of people wearing seatbelts. Are there things where it is driver behavior, driver choice that we can do to speed up those changes in in how people act when they're they're behind the wheel? Yeah, absolutely. And and seatbelts is a really good example because you're absolutely right. It's taken a long time for us to get from you know, where we were in the late 70s of less than half the people using their belts to where we are today of about 90%. And even with that 90% usage, you know, what we find is, is when you look at the fatalities that occur in the U.S., 50% of the fatalities are unbelted. And so that's an extremely high number that we have to figure out how to correct and how to get people to continue to put their belts on. And so we've we've still got a lot of work to do with respect to that. And that's a really important thing as we move forward and start talking about self-driving cars and autonomous vehicles 
And one of the big concerns as you move forward is talking about occupant protection within those vehicles. You're still going to need to have people belted up because they're still going to get involved with crashes in non-self-driving vehicles. And so the crash worthiness and occupant protection of these vehicles is going to continue to be important as we move forward. We cannot lose sight of that. Well, today we've been talking mostly about ADAS and automated systems to increase safety. Obviously, there's much more that IIHS is involved with. Tell us a bit about some of the other initiatives that are underway and things that you might like to uh, share with our listeners, please. Sure. One of the things that's about to come out very soon is, and we're doing this with Consumer Reports this year for the first time, is releasing our teen vehicle list. So the, the vehicles that we believe, you know, used vehicles that would be good for teen drivers. And so we'll be coming out with that here in the next month or so. And so that's always an exciting time for us is to get that out there for parents that are looking for a vehicle for their teens or a teen that's looking for a safe vehicle. Uh, and so that'll be coming out shortly. Another fun summertime story that we just released was on the issue of convertibles. And the question often comes up is, are convertibles as safe as hardtop sedans that are out there? And so we were able to do a study looking at the same make, same model, same year vehicles that were in the convertible class and vehicles that were not, were just regular sedans. And what we discovered was is that convertibles are just as safe. So you can go buy that fun convertible <laughs> if you want, drive it around in the summertime, and not have to worry about the vehicle being less safe than that sedan that you might have been considering. Let me ask you another question regarding the times in which we live right now. Obviously, we've got COVID-19, and one of the things that I'd seen a number of stories from many different states with this is that while traffic volume was down quite a bit, Unfortunately, drivers react in some cases by driving faster in an unsafe manner and fatalities in some places actually rose even though there were fewer vehicles on the roadway. Anything that IIHS has found with that? I know it's, it's rather recent, but any early indications that you've come up with? No, we've seen the same anecdotal evidence that everybody else has seen and put out there. And we're waiting for time to pass so we can get enough data to really figure out what is happening there. I do think, you know, there was the case of, of traffic dropping and, and maybe people speeding that we heard about, and there were some issues with that. Traffic has rebounded, as you know, people are, are back out on the roads, and we're, I think the last thing I saw was we're roughly about 90% of where we were before uh, with regards to traffic volume. So, there's a, a lot more people back out there on the roads, but it's one of the things that we will be looking at as to what happened in COVID-19 during the first months of those crises, and then what did occur with regards to speeds, what occurred with regards to all things road safety and transportation. One of the things that we're very interested in is there were a lot of cities that took advantage of the crisis to make some changes for the non-motorized sectors, right? And so they added a lot of bike lanes or they put in bike boulevards or they changed pedestrian signal timings to allow pedestrians to have more time to cross the intersections. And one of the things that we're very interested in is, is are there learning opportunities from the COVID-19 experience with respect to road safety that we could potentially take and turn into long-term sustainable interventions. 
that could make the roads safer for all users as we move forward. And so that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at in the next few months. Well, we look forward to hearing uh, the results of uh, that research as it is ongoing. We've been talking on this edition of the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast with Dr. David Harkey. Again, he's the president of the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety and the Highway Loss Data Institute. David, again, thank you so much for joining me uh, on the podcast. Thank you, Bernie. Stay safe.